This episode of Navara FM was made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navara Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, and help us build people-powered media. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm Eleanor Penny. Here on planet Earth, we are facing some problems on a monumentally large scale. From global temperature rises to nuclear radiation, from deforestation to industrial diseases to the economic systems that cause them, the mind-bending size of these issues sometimes makes it hard for us to wrap our heads around them, let alone come up with solutions. So how do we start grappling with these systems transforming the world around us? According to writer and researcher Jay Owens, one answer might be to start thinking very, very small. In her new book, Dust, Jay travels from the Sierra Nevada of California to the dried up lake beds of the former Aral Sea, from nuclear test zones in Algeria to the ice sheets of the Arctic. The book explores how these humble little particles we call dust connect us to the deep past, the deep future, and the metabolic systems of the earth. Why should we care about the dust on the roads, the dust in our lungs, or the dust under our sofa? Simply put, because it contains the world. I sat down with Jay to talk about coal, cotton, soil, and the work of salvaging the planet. Hi Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for bringing me in. So, uh, the big question top of the 10 is why dust like why dust is a methodology for telling these kind of uh huge sometimes navigable feeling stories about climate and capitalism and things like that dust really found me as a method i was in california in 2015 my friend brad garrett had invited me on a road trip to go and see the strange rocks and strange places of the Mojave Desert and inland California. And I pitched this as a story to Roads and Kingdoms, a travel magazine, um, thinking that we were on a trail of sort of devils and the nuclear age, um, looking at Jack Parsons, who was involved in the Jet Propulsion Lab and strange occult works out in uh, you know, <laughs> mid-century California. You know, it sounds like a great story. That's what I thought we were there to try and do. But the landscape had other ideas. The place had other ideas. And... Dust just kept coming at us. Um, we started off driving into the Sierra Nevada and into you know, high mountains covered in forests. And there's this kind of mushroom cloud on the horizon, a grey plume of smoke rising. And there's a forest fire. And, you know, I'm British. I've never encountered this before. It's it's clearly very early. There's nothing about it on the radio. It must have just started a kind of an hour before. And we end up, we ask at a local gas station, what, what's going on? She's like, oh yeah, forest fire, North Fork, you know, a couple of valleys over. Um, and it assures us it's fine to go on. Okay then, shit. Uh, keep on driving. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the forest fire? That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> the for- I mean, now the forests just burn here is very, very much known. But you know, at that point, fairly small. And you know, we drive onto the campsite for the night and there's ash raining in over our heads. The sky is, the sun is red as though it's bleeding. It's this, and you know, you're just sort of larking around on rocks, drinking whiskey, you know, having a good time in this absolutely otherworldly environment. And the next kind of 10 days just kind of kept doing things like that. It really wasn't subtle. Um, we go to a ghost town called Bodie up in the eastern Sierra, an old gold mining town, which um, likes to market itself as the best preserved gold mining town in <laughs> the American West, pretty much. And, and its dust is very carefully curated here. It's allowed to build up thickly on all the bottles and things in the pharmacy, for example, to show how authentic this ghost town is, that this is not a manicured uh, tourist trap like some other places in Arizona so this is you know proper heritage capital letters um we drive through a missile silo somewhere out in Nevada and you know, we've got these sort of um and there's dust devils you know 100 meters tall swirling up into the air um we go and look at uh, a place called Rainbow Basin it's got this extraordinary colored geology and your phone's actually sort of 
vibrate with this weather alert, an emergency alert, saying dust storms expected. And at this point, I just go, oh, shit. Well, <laughs> I managed to turn in the piece to Roads and Kingdoms. But it makes it clear that dust is the thing to be writing about, that the through line of this place, the way to connect this journey and to tell a story about it is through dust. Both, you know, thought broadly here, I talk about dust meaning flying particles, right? Tiny flying particles. Um, whether that is the you know ash from the forest fire, whether that's sand lifted into the air, whether that's all of the things you get indoors. And it's a way to talk about people and place at the same time. It's a way to talk about sort of the environment and the Anthropocene and changing climates and environmental disaster, the, the, you know, the forest fire, while also making, you know, not, not putting the environment and people at a reserve. I think that's been the sort of the centre of it as a method for me. I'm really intrigued by your uh, citing of this idea of uh, the hyperobject, uh, this kind of uh, framework for uh, pointing at the kind of um, phenomena that is really hard to think about, just really hard to wrap our uh, minds around on a human scale, right? Like uh, climate change, the amount of plastic that's been produced uh, in the world ever, I don't know, black holes, uh, the world system of the economy, this sort of thing. So what was it like kind of zeroing in on something that operates on both such a, like this tiny, minute scale and also obviously on a global scale? <laughs> Bloody difficult to write is the answer. <laughs> I mean, you're looking, I think, at, let's say, a, at least a 12-fold order of magnitude here. So you've got, you know, dust itself at maybe 10 or 1 micrometers, so um, 10 to the minus 5, 10 to the minus 6 meters in scale. And then I'm also talking about billions of tons. Two billion tons of dust is lifted into the air each year. I'm talking about traveling, you know, dust being lifted thousands of kilometers around the world. Um, I'm looking back hundreds of millions of years in time to how certain rocks and soils are formed that, you know, helps places create the, you know, become dust in the future. And so where the hell you start a story within that is <laughs> difficult and took some sort of editing in there. But, you know, it's good. I think it's intellectually and useful for us to try thinking on scales beyond the human. And and dust's total familiarity is is useful here. Like, you know, you're not necessarily starting off in strange chemicals and unfamiliar acronyms and, you know, heart chemistry. You're talking about the stuff that's like on your table and then you're starting from that absolute prosaic familiarity and expanding it out to this question of the world. Mm, I think you have a you have a great line that's uh, the dust under the sofa contains the world which, <laughs> which I love. Um, in the spirit of um, having uh, nowhere to start because it is such an all-consuming and it's a world-spanning issue, let's start somewhere and let's start at the uh, Industrial Revolution. So you write that uh, the air became modern before we did. I'm really intrigued by your uh, narratives around coal and um, how that plays this sort of transformative role in uh, the world economy, but also in our health, in the way that we relate to waste, in the way that we relate to the environment, in the way that we relate to one another. Yes, absolutely. So it's an interesting argument. And here I'm drawing on the work of environmental historians such as William Cavett, who argue that when we think about atmospheric air pollution in particular, the sort of decisive moment isn't necessarily the kind of, you know, 1780 kind of industrial revolution. That's a crucial point in you know, the fundamental changing of the world's energy systems. But when it comes to coal in particular, it starts getting the first place in the world that really starts using coal in significant sort of environmental transforming factories is London in the about the 1570s, mm. which starts importing really grubby old sea coal down from Newcastle um, because wood's got too expensive. And yeah, partly, I think, is it's getting used for ships and the Spanish Armada and other, other sorts of usage. So there's, there's this conveniently Newcastle and the area around there produces coal that's really close to the surface. So China also had coal before this period, but for a combination of sort of economic and logistical factors, never really got using it as systematically and as heavy. But in London, they're getting through a ton per person per year. You know, it's a significant quantity and it's dirty, stinky stuff and just starts to build a kind of fog, a kind of blanket <laughs> of suppurating yuck over the entire city. Um, and 
you know, it's not just, you know, it's at this point, it's not just kind of a shift in particulate pollution ticking upwards. This, this, I think, in an air pollution term, in dusty terms, this feels the start of the modern age, the birth of the fossil fuel energy regime. It's not yet this industrial usage that's sort of the start of the hockey stick upwards. You know, that takes the invent invention of the uh, steam engine, you know, the ability to kind of like multiply output, um, which they didn't yet have in the 1570s and the sort of early 1600s. Um, that's the Andreas Malm argument. He likes to really emphasize the steam engine. But in terms of air pollution, you've got the modern city, you know, the early modern city is the modern city in that sense, that the um, choking air pollution is a problem. And, you know, people are doing some quite similar things. The Elizabeth I tries to ban coal at one point. She doesn't succeed, but you've got the start of, you know, mm -hmm. a straight line through from her to um, our dear old mayor today with the ULES, you know. <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> um, we uh, support Sadiq. He's extremely, he's probably the best uh, advocate for particulate air pollution, well, advocate for fixing particulate air pollution. Yeah, not, like, specifically not an advocate for particulate air pollution. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, when um, you talk about the kind of, the the toll of um, this sort of ambient dust and sort of ambient pollution on our bodies, it really um, gave me pause to think, because I was wandering around London, I was like on a main road, um, walking around uh, Tottenham where I live, um, going, hang on a yeah. damn second here. Um, because the, the way in which um, I guess we're used to understanding uh, modernity as this kind of clean, slick, clicking together of individual parts um, in this kind of a strict machine-like sense that is all very efficient and uh, all very kind of utopian. But with an attention to dust, you have a moment of thinking, oh, everything is always falling apart. <laughs> right. And uh, we need to also be dealing with that. Absolutely. I mean, I think of dust as the sort of the shadow of modernity. And like a shadow, it's always following you. It's always present. It's always there. And that the cost for the clean, shiny progress, the technology, the rising incomes, the the control over nation and domination is a fact that sort of, no, actually, there is pollution, there is waste, there is there are consequences punted into the future. There are people paying for all of those things, you know, that it's not cost free. It's, it's progress is born on other people's backs and is worn into their lungs. Talking of you, Les, um, you cite the um, really tragic case of Ella Kissy Deborah, um, who uh, was a young girl who um, has recently, um, an inquest has uh, officially uh, found that her death was due to air pollution. And um, the story that you tell about dust is, of course, one that's sort of hard to pin down, you know, metaphorically and literally, because it has this uh, terrible tendency to get everywhere. But of course, the burden is not evenly distributed in terms of uh, economic outcomes, in terms of health outcomes. Yes, absolutely. There's a really useful term called slow violence, which is a humanities, environmental humanities scholar, Rob Nixon coined in about 2011. And you know, it, it's why dust is kind of hard to think about that, you know, he writes that um, slow violence is a violence that occurs gradually and out of sight, a violence of delayed destruction that is dispersed across time and space, an attritional violence that is typically not viewed as violence at all. And so you have some sort of five to 10 million people a year killed by air pollution. It's one of the top five biggest causes of death in the world. It is very substantially preventable. Um, but because it's takes, you know, it's, it's not like being shot. It's not like being run over by a car. Um, you know, if cars were running over that many people in London, we would probably do something to ban them. But because it's, it's you know, it's, it's an asthma attack, it's COPD, it's heart disease, as the dust particles don't, don't just get into people's lungs, but into their blood and cause, you know, inflammation and irritation of the whole system. It's cancers that can take decades. And so, you know, the way you understand and recognize the death toll is this actuarial, statistical one. Um, you know, all of the demographers and health scientists and the, the statisticians and the civil servants know about it. But publicly and popularly, there's it's hard to think about, right? It's hard to think with. And so, you know, meanwhile, while you, Les, as a constraint on the 5% of people whose cars don't qualify is a very tangible sort of disbenefit to those people. But the the lives being saved aren't visible enough. They aren't hard enough to see. And, you know, 
Ella Adiokisi Deborah is but one person. Her de her death was you know, put on her death certificate that air pollution was a contributing factor. It's not that she's the only person for whom that's the case at all. It's what coroners are legally able to do. It's you know the norms about how you describe causality in medicine, all this kind of nerdy stuff. You know she stands as a symbol for hundreds and thousands of other people, hundreds of children who are killed and are also severely life-limited by air pollution. Um, and the work of her mother, Rosamond, in raising awareness of this is just absolutely astonishing and um, very, very grateful for it. And when we think about... Um London, uh, the lives of Londoners is sort of central to uh, the genesis of, of this kind of global story. Uh, what I'm brought back to is the ideas of, around how waste was managed in the kind of early industrial revolution, certainly in the, the pre-industrial revolution, which was with a lot of labour, with a lot of elbow grease. And of course, those jobs were often like um, highly exploitative uh, themselves. Sometimes they could be sort of very, uh, very well paid, uh, like night soil men in certain uh, parts of uh, history and certain parts of the economy, uh, so-called, were um, very uh, heavily compensated to make up for the fact that they were literally kind of wading through human shit. Thank you very much. I wouldn't want to do that job either. Let someone be paid amazingly well to do it. Uh, but there's this transfer of kind of waste management from uh, sort of human labour to um, uh, the environment and also to um, just not managing it at all and letting the consequences fall where they may, often on people who are, you know, doubly and triplely marginalised by the economy anyway. Absolutely. I mean, one stat is the, um, the number of women employed in domestic service. At one point, it was one in three women aged between 15 and 25 were housemaids of, of one or various sorts in the points of the Victorian period. So they're busy dusting and doing this cleaning labor for the upper classes and it's and the emergent middle classes at that point you know labor being relatively cheap um and i mean it's you know they're they're just i don't know it makes it staggering how, what proportion of population is doing that but equally you've got um dust as a sort of industrial diseases mm. from coal mining from stone masonry anything where you're kind of chipping bits of stuff out of the ground. Um, each, I know whether I can get this off the top of my head, but each in industrial area gets its own sort of name for the kind of lung disease it produces. You have black lung for coal miners. Um, you've got, of course, asbestosis for people who are working specifically with asbestos. So the consequence of the construction of the modern world from the fuel, the coal, you know, to the stones being used to build new buildings, new, new areas of housing, new areas the city expands, um, you know, to each kind of material that gets put into those buildings to insulate it, to to shape it, to make it more beautiful. Every, all the jobs in the factories, the cotton workers, of course, have their own set of lung diseases from um, the tiny you know, flying uh, uh, lint and, and that's you know, thick in the air. It gets described well in um, North and South in particular. And you know, the good factory owners maybe have some sort of systems of fans and things to try and filter the air a little bit. But mostly people are just breathing in filth in order to produce the cottons and the affordable fabrics that produce this kind of um, consumer modernity of the Victorian period. Period. And this kind of transformation in just the sheer amount of stuff people have. And, you know, through to iPhone manufacturing in the present day, in fact, mm. where um, in the early 2010s, there were a number of fires at the Foxconn factories that were making, making the iPhone. But because the casing of the iPhone is made out of aluminium, and of course, Apple's design sort of processes are want really perfect machined lacquered surfaces that are you know that are cut that they are shaped that they are polished and each one of those producers guess what and um aluminium dust massively flammable you know you're increasing its uh, surface area so it gets more explosive to the same way that flour same way that um, lots of types of dust are particularly explosive and so number of periods in the 2010s there were there were fires there were worker deaths in terms of yeah, producing the iphone this kind of symbol of our kind of contemporary modernity was a, a habitual attempt to kind of sever every cord of like causal responsibility between like employer and burden on the uh, not just the employed but sort of everyone 
downstream of capital. Uh, it's kind of very useful in our thinking, but also very kind of like hard to pin down. Classically, you find these cases, you know, litigated in courts for years, sometimes successful, often not, um, because it's the kind of thing that an employer can just kind of throw their hands up and be like, well, you know, we put a fan in the corner, I guess. We opened a window once in a while, but what are you going to do? you got to produce cotton. Yeah, yeah. And it's all happening at a remove. You know, the housemaids are downstairs, the coal mines are in Wales or they're in Newcastle or they're increasingly abroad. You know, the iPhone factory is in China. Um, it's and, and how do you how would how can a worker necessarily get the agency to measure this particularly? You know, you need technical equipment to monitor dust levels. It's um, you know, you need your union might be able to have a shot, but you as an individual haven't got a huge amount of chance. And it's this relation again between sort of margin and the centre, between the periphery and the core, um, is, is intrinsic to these relations of um, environmental injustice that I'm writing about. It's this mm -hmm. tendency to discard and displace, to sort of brush under the carpet in a terrible pun I use, hopefully only once in the book. <laughs> <laughs> we'll forgive you. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk about that relationship between sort of periphery and metropolis, the kind of zone from which goods and resources and whatnot are extracted and where they kind of get realised into the sort of market value, uh, into things that we can buy and sell and make profit off if you're so inclined, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, dust looms very large in, uh, in ways of making that story real in, in terms of that bringing that story home. Absolutely. And I mean, three of the big stories I tell in the book are all about the making of modernity in these enabled and by these peripheral remote sort of places. So the first is an area called Payahunadu or the Owens Valley in eastern Sierra, California. Um, and this in the early 1900s was a green, luscious valley in the shadow of the Sierra Mountains, drained dry by the growth of Los Angeles and the fast dealings of William Mulholland, who came bought up all its water rights and started, built a, you know, got thousands of men to build a canal, more uh, industrial injuries and accidents there, mm. um, take that water to Los Angeles and enable the city of Los Angeles to grow. I mean, you have to think of, Los this is in the film Chinatown very famously, mm. um, you have to think of Los Angeles as a kind of, you know, glossy LA vampire really sitting <laughs> in the bay, but drawing water from across the American West. You know, this extraordinary engineering, it's about 250 miles of uh, aqueduct and tunnel through mountain ranges in order to get this water. But then flows downhill, powered only by gravity, and is seen as essentially a free water source for Los Angeles for the last pretty much 100 years. And you know, it does this, but at the cost of turning the Owens Valley into a dust bowl, um, a huge lake, the Owens Lake, 110 square miles, dries up to nothing in the span of little more than a decade. Um, wow. It becomes the biggest dust source, certainly in the United States, quite possibly the Western Hemisphere. And that's the um, dried lakes, dried lakes produce really bad dust because as they accumulate sediment from all of the land around, you get a particular type of really fine particle. It's not super well bonded to anything else. So it's when it gets picked up by the wind, it has the tendency to blow. And it was full of pollutants as well, arsenic uh, mineral, and minerals like that that have either come down naturally from the rocks and concentrated there or been picked up from all the gold mining, silver mining and all of the other... Um, other activities in the region. And so you've got this huge environment, you've got an environmental disaster, really global scale environmental disaster zone, 250 miles from Los Angeles. And well, you know, it's enabled the city to grow, but at what incredibly destructive cost. But you know, sort of out there in the desert, it's where the people there aren't thought to count. The Paiutes, the indigenous people, had, uh, indigenous Americans, had been thrown off their land a couple of generations before. Um, otherwise, it's little farmers, it's ranchers. There's, it's, it is the little guy versus the city. And um, until the Environmental Protection Agency and proper decades of, legis of uh, lawsuits in between about 1970 and, well, still going, um, until there were those forces of that size, um, how could they fight back against Los Angeles? And there's this um, sort of horrible echo between what's happening in Owens Lake and what's happened, what's uh, still happening in the Aral Sea. And I was mind blown by the fact that I had never heard of it. 
<laughs> the Aral Sea. I mean, I remember this as a kid on atlases, in my case, probably the early 90s. And, you know, I'm a bit of a geographer, a bit of a nerd. You, 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 you sort of learn your line of, of seas. Okay, you've got the Mediterranean, you've got the Black Sea, you've got the Caspian Sea, you've got the Aral Sea. And the problem is, even by the time the atlases were drawn then in the late 90, in the 90s, the Aral Sea didn't exist, that it had it's pretty much been dried up by water extraction again, this time not for the growth of the city, but equally for production, for cotton farming in uh, Uzbekistan and, well, the USSR, as it was at the time. Cotton is a wicked plant. It has the ability to grow in deserts um, as long as you apply enough water to it. And so it you know, the cotton production requires enormous either groundwater pumping, which destroys ecosystems around, or extraction of water from rivers, in this case, the Amri Daria. And in order to meet USSR cotton targets as part of the uh, Soviet regime's competition with the United States and ability to, again, achieve growth, mm. um, Uzbekistan, you know, a periphery with relationship to Moscow and uh, Karakalpakstan, the particular region, a periphery with relation to Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan. Mm. I mean, it's fucked. It, they had, you know, no, really no two words about it. The targets are there. In the classic Soviet style, they were sort of cotton targets increasing by millions of tonnes per year. And they're impossible. They're absolutely ecologically impossible. And so the river is extracted until it runs dry. The soil becomes thick with salt. The cotton can't grow. And you've just destroyed a sea. Um, I went there in, in 2019 to, you know, saw the last kind of shining western lobe of the Aral, which is sort of 25 kilometers wide when it was hundreds. Um, it stinks. It's a sick. It's a dead place. It's, you know, you sort of, some uh, saw some people swimming in the water, but I, I felt like I didn't want to go near it. It was mm. deeply, deeply sad, deeply uncanny. Um, and the fishing industry, of course, which had sustained people for years, that the, the richness of, of the landscape had just dried up to nothing. And, you know, if anyone knows anything about the Aral Sea now, it's just the uh, the famous wrecked boats that stand in Moynach, um, you know, a symbol of where the water is gone. Often when we talk about kind of environmental issues, certainly environmental justice, it can be framed in a kind of man v land situation of like, okay, we all need to sort of uh, put less of a burden on this separate thing uh, that we can all kind of label nature and point at as something over there, right? And um, yeah, of course, we do need to extract less resources from the earth because we're using about, what, what is it, one point four earth, something like that. Um, someone fact check me, please. Um Certainly far too much. Um, but what the story of the uh, of the Aral Sea and the Owens Lake and a lot of the stories that you tell um, point out is this kind of dual process of extraction, both from people and uh, from planet. And what happens, uh, can you tell us about what happens to, for instance, uh, the, the workers and the, the cotton farms as well? Christ, I mean, the health situation in the Karakalpakstan region in Uzbekistan was absolutely horrific. Um, you're getting a lot of problems for people because of the salt, salt in the water supply once you start. Um, and so kidney problems, um, there was a program, tuberculosis. Um, you know, you had, Uzbekistan has been famous, unfortunately, for child labour um, in cotton picking, um, the theory being that children have smaller hands and so better picking the balls, which has been semi-outlawed by the current governments. In 2016, there was a change of regime. Um, and the, so the child labour situation has, I think it's fair to say, improved. I wouldn't be wanting to be make promises that it's entirely ended. Um, but you've just got, you know, and but you've just taken the centre of, of the economy out. If you're living by a sea, it's a fishing economy, you know, and mm. you had, it used to, I think, make canned fish for much of the Soviet Union. That's, that's the wow. functioning economy that should be in that place. Um, I mean, now, uh, astonishingly and somewhat hard to credit, but it seems that the state vision for Moynak, this dusty, sort of you know, impoverished fishing town is to make it a centre for tourism, um, presumably mostly tourism within Uzbekistan, but to uh, bring back gambling, to make it into some sort of Las Vegas of uh, Western Uzbekistan. Um, how to say this without being dismissive of a place that you know, people live and, and is very precious to them, but 
is not an easy le- leisure. For, <laughs> not an easy uh, vacation location. Mm. It's, it's, it's the least promising one in history. But you get a ton of construction and, again, uh, dust devils huge ones, biggest dust devils I have ever seen there as they pick up the construction material, as they pick up the cement. Um, and it's just this sort of, I mean, it's, it's fairly apocalyptic. You've got people with wrapped in, sitting by the side of the road with cloth wrapped all around their heads, covering their faces and eyes um, so that they can spend time outdoors and you know, well, take a break from work. You talk about uh, a history of dust as an absent history of water and tying that into the to the water is life uh, slash water defender movements uh, with uh, First Nations people on Turtle Island. Uh, can you tell us more about that? So it's funny, I, I, you know, I come from a geography background and I had studied sort of water politics for a whole period of time, but it was only my editor who was like, Jay, you're writing a book about water here. And I'm like, Oh, damn it. Yeah, you're quite right. <laughs> so, you know, dust is produced often by the extraction of water, whether that is from um, you know, stopping a river, as in the Uzbekistan case, whether it's by groundwater pumping, which, again, to you know, for construction of cities and so on. You know, I write about dust to continue that story of water politics. What happens when the water is gone? What happens to the people who still live there? What happens next? But it was interesting. When I went to um, Payahunadu, which is the indigenous name for the Owens Valley, um, and one people in the area are trying to use more, um, you know, I asked, you know, does dust mean anything to you in, in Numu and Paiute life? And the answer was kind of, no, not really. I mean, there was a lot of it, um, and it was a hazard, and it was something people were campaigning against, but it had no significance cosmologically, whereas pyre, water, water is life. It's it's the, you know, people know that it enables their lives there, um, and they recognise it as a kind of being. Um, you know, I spoke to people who saw themselves as water protectors, who had been working tirelessly for decades and will continue to work probably for the rest of their life to bring back water to that land, to fight against Los Angeles, to make it seem even possible that Los Angeles shouldn't need to take that water and it can can continue its age-old path to melt on the mountains of Sierra Nevada, to run through rivers and um, to perhaps fill back Owens Lake again. And when we talk about um, places that have been... uh damaged certainly by various kinds of environmental degradation uh, it's tempting to kind of think of these places as kind of dead or beyond repair or things of that nature which does seem to kind of reinvent the sort of terra nullius there's nothing there there's no one there we can kind of do what we like with it logic which helped kick off this whole situation in the first place and you really um are uh, very careful to caution against that kind of uh climate grief or that instantiation of climate grief certainly yeah no you, you put that very well and you know one of the people i spoke to terry red owl said you know i wouldn't call it ruined i'd call it damaged but you know damages can be repaired and that's the important attitude to hold on to that it's a sort of change is possible and in some parts of the valley in these in the sierras it's change happens astonishingly fast there was um Fairly recently, at a place called Fish Springs, some of the a couple of the groundwater pumps got turned off, um, and within a season, you know, the groundwater table had recovered and the plant life started growing back. The mm. seeds that had been on the land, you know, just dormant in the soil for years, perhaps decades, sprung back again. Um, there's been a lot more water there this year uh, due to record high snow uh, snowfall in the Sierra Nevada last winter, and the Owens Owens Lake has substantially refilled, and it just springs back. Even even when water was brought back um, to, to parts of it in the 2000s as part of dust control works, you know the birds who migrate up the Western Flyway sort of saw ooh, you know shining water where there had previously been a dust bowl landed in their tens of thousands. And, you know, within a couple of years, the place had to be recognised as a sort of site of, we'd, we'd call them a sort of site of special scientific interest, you mm. know, that it was a particularly valuable nature preserve and one of the best birdwatching sites in the Western US. Because, mm. you know, it's, it's this incredible industrialised landscape with the dust control works that have been built there to control it. You know, it's not beautiful, it's not natural, it's not been returned to how it was, that's impossible. But 
there is this way, nature finds a way. And I find that's important to remember that life will come back even in unlikely circumstances. You know, it doesn't have to be pretty to be natural. Aesthetics <laughs> are a sort of romantic bullshit that we impose on landscapes. But to remember that change is possible is, is the political task here. And to, you know, Terry can't afford to give up hope. Nobody in that place can afford to give up hope. You know, despair is, is a bit of a luxury here. And recognizing what how quickly change can happen as soon as the water comes back is one of the huge lessons from my travel there. Tell us a little about um, the role of land back in this potential transformative process. I'm really struck by kind of, you know, just how damaging things like that, the links of, between the homesteading acts that sort of gave off swaths of um, the what was then known as the Wild West um, to white settlers and the way in which the earth was seen as something to be broken. But it does challenge us to think about, okay, we are where we are. What are the kinds of forms of ownership, the kinds of forms of uh, collectivity and democracy that we need in order to do this reparative work. Absolutely. And one of the things that kind of excited me and surprised me in a good way in when in parts of the US is that land back doesn't seem to be such a radical idea. It's not just sort of indigenous folks and sort of their white, you know, college-educated radical allies who are like, hey, th this is cool. It's, it's actually seen as quite possible and quite normal in it's what you need to know to recognize this is that a lot of the American West is public land in the first place that mm. sort of, where do we say, west of the 20th parallel or thereabouts. Most of these states are public land. Maybe it's owned by um, the BLM. Maybe it's owned by different um, different sort of public bodies out there. But it's not actually privately owned. It's not privately owned ranch land. And so the chance you know, land back in terms of moving things into tribal ownership um, you know, it's not a sort of pro process of land being seized. Um, you know, it, people have, white people, I think, can be prone to a kind of vision of land back, that it's indigenous folks wanting to reenact the violence that was done to them, you know, 100, 150 years before. Whereas it's actually a sort of <laughs> nicely bureaucratic process of just raising millions of dollars and buying parcels of land. Mm -hmm. um, and then in order to... Uh, conserve that land in order to use it for more beneficial purposes and to um, stop using it perhaps so intensively. But it's it's very possible. It's very doable. It's 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 about transfer transfer transferring legal title and it, it's not it's not a remote possibility and over there a kind of utopia though. I mean certainly perhaps at scale it can and ought to be. But it, it's now and it can be done and it's um it is happening even in the places I write about in small scales, you know, little little parcels are getting transformed to native ownership. Um, certainly in the Eastern Sierra, the land the uh, Paiute tribes have there, is they have tiny parcels, really only, gosh, if I guess right, hundreds or a couple of thousand acres, sort of size of a town. They used to own the entire valley, or not own, but certainly live and steward the entire valleys. And if, you do, if you've only got a couple of thousand acres, let's say, you've got homes for people, but you haven't got farmland, you haven't got the ability to restore ecosystems, you haven't got the ability to use springs and water sources um, for traditional ceremonies and healing. And that's the vision, is just getting the ability to bring some of that back. Um, and similarly, perhaps on the high plains in the central, more central part of the United States, um, which I write about with regard to the Dust Bowl, um, where the goal has to be to cut a very long story short, plowing that land is a really fucking bad idea. Uh, it's windy, it's dry, it's prone to 20-year mega droughts. Um, Not ideal. <laughs> leave the grass on it. Yes. The grass, it grows lovely long roots, it holds everything together. And so again, some of that land is at this point so depopulated and so uneconomic for any other use. Unfortunately, this makes it, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that it's in that position, but it does make land back and um, bringing the uh, bison back as well become start to become a more possible outcome in those situations. And uh, so indigenous tribes and states really across across much of the West are pushing to gain, regain ownership of the land and with that, you know, bring the water back as well.
Yeah, and when we talk about land that was declared owned by no one, when in fact it's actually um, lived on and used and suited by uh, many people, in fact, um, a big part of the story is of how that land has been used and misused, certainly in the latter half of the 20th century, has, of course, been uh, nuclear testing uh, in uh, supposedly remote or far-flung places, uh, in uh, desert places, which we uh, don't necessarily think of as having an ecology, which, of course, they do. That's something that I would was kind of shocked by or maybe not surprised by when I read the book was to learn that as part of the deal that um, Algeria was forced into as part of um, going independent from its former colonial masters of France was to um, still um, allow, still have to allow France to conduct nuclear tests on uh, Algerian soil. And um, obviously, not an ideal thing to do with a landscape. Not at all. And quite similarly, actually, in Australia, where the desert tests there, uh, Britain's tests took place in Australia. And this was after Australia had declared independence. But the Prime Minister sort of merrily invited the British in because it's happening out in the desert. And the the people there are seen as non-people, that the occupation of the desert, you know, which is in both the Algerian Sahara and in the Australian outback, the um, you know, Aboriginal Australians are move very lightly over land. They cover big distances. They don't necessarily have fixed houses. They don't necessarily have farmed areas of land. And so their presence in the landscape was just sort of ignorable, that you can see these places as empty and non-peopled. Um, and there were, you know, the, I there are some Australians, a couple of them, um, who end up have to trying to actually know where the indigenous people are and do a lot of work driving around to try and keep them out of harm's way. But by and large, the authorities do not give a shit. And and this land is declared, as you say, a kind of empty zone and empty quarter for great toxicity and destruction and upheaval to take place. But it's in the desert, and the desert has this strange role, I think, in the Western imagination as a sort of kind of visit a non-place. It's a it's an outside, it's an other, where you can take these dirty tasks, you know, the kind of American movie trope of burying bodies out in the desert, um, mm. <laughs> in nuclear testing and operating in the same, you can do anything out there because it's not really a real place and it doesn't matter. But of course it is, and it is inhabited. And of course, in each case, um, hundreds or thousands of people get exposed to radiation from these tests because you know, guess what? Nuclear dust irradiates a ton of sand and blasts it into the air. And Mm. it it travels for hundreds of kilometers. And you get these crops of, you know, cancers, radiation diseases. You see it in the United States, uh, where the tests were particularly held in the Nevada desert, and it sort of blows over Utah. Uh, You see it in the Algerian case. Um, You know, probably do see it in China and in Russia's tests, which took place in Kazakhstan. But the, you know, whether there's ever been much measurement or um, reporting of that data at all in the first place. Again, a lot of this violence is achieved through not actually measuring outcomes whatsoever. If you don't actually ask how many people died of cancer, you can claim it didn't happen at all. Mm -hmm. Nuclear dust seems to be a kind of particular test for the the purposeful failures of of certain accountability structures, particularly um, when it falls in certain uh, between certain gaps of um, you know interstate uh, accountability or the gaps of accountability between people and employers or individuals and their governments, mm-hmm. often with sort of dispersed causality, they're just aren't the mechanisms of yep. justice there, yep. particularly ones that we might have access to. And you've got campaigners, they call themselves downwinders, and there's a really international movement now of nuclear-affected peoples, um, because there were also actually a lot of soldiers exposed to the nuclear tests, sometimes almost really quite deliberately, a, a belief that you needed to kind of toughen up your infantrymen by showing them a nuclear test from a sort of five or ten mile distance so that they would recognise what was going on and not be afraid of it. So you have soldiers as as one particularly affected population, indigenous people as another, and in the States in particular, sort of uh, Mormons and sheep herders and kind of rural farming people. And, you know, they're quite, some quite aware. There's a quote in the book about women who says, like, we were, you know, Mormons and Indians and shepherds. We were little people. We didn't matter. And Mm. that's their position with respect to the state. You'd get sometimes some warning that there's going to be a test. There'd be warnings in the States that you should not drink the milk from your cows or sheep for the next eight days because that's when the radioactive iodine is is active. But it's, you know, it's all statistical risk. It's, you know, it's not after eight days the radiation has vanished. It's not that there aren't other types of radiation in there. You've got 
absolutely crazy situations as well in the sort of 50s or 60s of people kind of watching the nuclear explosions on the horizon as some kind of spectacle. You know, the, the sky lights up and in, you have viewing parties in Las Vegas, you have sort of atomic cocktails and showgirls, Miss Atomic Bomb. Um, and it, it, it's yeah, the, the bikini. Of, yes, quite. I mean, the bikini being named off the test on Bikini Atoll the day, a couple of days previously. And, you know, it's as though we can we can see the moment of detonation and then we shut our eyes to the rest of it. It's like the the mushroom cloud symbol, something, you know, children are taught to be incredibly afraid of it. A bit before my time, but, you know, we have to recognise there's this huge fear of nuclear war. But then we've got, what, a million people, perhaps as many as 2.4 million people will die. Future tense, have died and will die. Um, the a group of physicians against nuclear war um, have estimated once we add up all of these, you know, statistical cancer deaths and rises in, in ill health as a consequence of it, it's an enormous death toll. It's a war-sized death toll. And this was done in the cost of keeping people safe. That, you know, people watching the spectacle on the horizon and not recognising, no, you are a victim of nuclear war. You know, it, this, is, this isn't... A deterrent. This is this is this is nuclear war with a death toll. And there's a sort of a horrible irony as well because of that um, like slightly untamable nature of dust. In that, that yes, its burden is unevenly shared, but particularly with the super tiny size of the particles, even for dust that are involved in um, a nuclear fallout, both in terms of radiated particles and uh, with just heavy metals. It's kind of hard for all of us to avoid this. Yeah. And, and, you know, some sort of fatalism is a very natural response to this. Um, there are some horrific stories in some of the oral histories of uh, communities in Utah, you know, particularly affected by this. And, you know, some people have become very, very active campaigners against nuclear testing, you know, so they say downwinders. Others report litanies of cancers and stillbirths and you know, children born unable to live because of you know, huge deformities and genetic conditions. And, and again, actually, it was soldiers quite similarly. And, you, you know, absolute litanies of death and destruction across a family tree and then go, well, you can't really know, can you? You know, and, and almost believing themselves not affected um, because... Perhaps it's too horrible to think of the state actually doing that to you. That, you know, you're, if it certainly is a white American, your identity is, you know, the, the state is, is my protector. And, and then it wouldn't, they wouldn't do something like that. And there's odd, odd relationships of, of sort of denial and half awareness in here. And, you know, for most people who, of course, are affected by radiation in a sense, you, can you really know why you've got thyroid cancer? It's an elevated statistical risk. And sometimes it's just damn well easier not to think about where exactly that cancer came from at all. Mm, and it is really challenging to our frameworks of harm and our frameworks of responsibility, right? Because if we, if we, in order to tear some kind of justice out of the hands of the state, which, you know, it has obviously a monopoly on resources, a monopoly on uh, the various uh, kinds of mechanisms that might go some way to um, giving something like restitution, even though, mm -hmm. of course, if, you're, if you've died from thyroid cancer, it's not necessarily um, something that can be uh, undone by the state, obviously. Uh, but if you have to draw those direct lines versus thinking in a more kind of communitarian, a more kind of... Yep. Uh, uh, collective responsibility, a collective harm mm -hmm. framework, those conversations become impossible and it's kind of easy to think like, maybe this is the framework that's supposed to make them impossible, right? Somewhat, indeed. I mean, possibly some of the nuclear harms, there has been a bit more restitution. Um, I haven't got the numbers to the top of my head, but there has, in the US, has done a reasonable job of compensating its nuclear veterans and nuclear-affected peoples. Certainly not saying it's perfect, but there has been some financial compensation. There's also the lab rats in the UK have been fighting a long campaign for just recognition, often military vets, um, for, for recognition of the harms they were exposed to and are starting to make some headway in, in getting that, that sort of recognition. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, yes, Algeria, in part Australia, in Pacific Islands, in Novaya Zemla in the north of Russia, with irradiating indigenous netheads in you know, remote Siberia. Like, yeah, a lot of it is, is a violence that's never going to be known or measured. So we've been talking about um, dust uh, in kind of pessimistic terms, sort of understandably, but you also write about dust as a part of the uh, Earth's ecosystem. It has this ambivalent role uh, in, for instance, global warming. It's 
delivers uh, nutrients to algae, which produce oxygen. Thank you very much, algae. Um, but it also has a really key role in, uh, in feedback loops yes. that are warming the planet. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, <laughs> inflammatory size question, this one. Truly. This is a sort of, I mean, it's one of the interesting things about dust is it's kind of marvellous ambivalence in terms of it's both useful and not useful at a human scale to uh, how it affects our planet. That, you know, I write, one of the first things I wrote about dust is it's part of the Earth's metabolism. You know, we need to think about it as part of these, these systems you maybe learnt about in geography at school, the water system, nitrogen cycle, mm. carbon cycle, part of the production of oxygen. Dust sort of inveigles its way into all of these things. Uh, you know, planetary systems are, you get these nice diagrams in your textbook, but they're not at all separate. Mm -hmm. So to simplify massively, um, there's, you know, parts of the Sahara are huge dust sources. It's completely disputed which bits. Um, <laughs> and particularly, you know, lots of dust rises up from particular places, but which, where does the dust actually get to travel from? So some fascinating uncertain science. But one part or another, you're picking up sand um, that's particularly you know, rich in iron and in phosphorus. Uh, you're also getting quantities of carbon soot from um, agricultural burning in parts of Africa. Mm -hmm. And these is carried westwards by the winds and sort of starts to, dust doesn't actually stay aloft for terribly long, generally about five days or thereabouts. So it can get a fair, di fair distance in that time and it'll start falling out across the Atlantic sometimes, um, producing these incredible green algae swirls that get shown on satellites, um, shared out enthusiastically on Twitter by uh, <laughs> <laughs> dust scientists. Um, and you know, the dust can sometimes travel as far as the Caribbean, um, falling out over uh, you know, sort of this kind of orangey-yellow film on people's cars. And, you know, sometimes it comes north up to the UK and up to Spain and up to sort of Western Europe. Uh, we had a, a dust incident last week. And sometimes it can make its way actually as far as the Amazon and uh, provide a source of nutrients, of iron, of phosphorus, um, that do a little bit, not necessarily a full job. Again, the scale is deeply disputed here, but bringing in iron and, and phosphorus to replenish the minerals get washed out by the rain. It's a rainforest, it rains a lot. The soil doesn't really hang around, it gets swept into the, into the rivers. That's why the Amazon is always a very unswimmable looking shade of muddy brown. Mm. Um, so it's this airborne transport of minerals provides part of the system that sustains that. Um, you know, uh, airborne air pollution is doing a lot of things and um, dust and the different types of air pollution are partly um, reflecting some of the sun's rays back out into space, keeping the planet a little bit cooler than it might be otherwise. Um, dust at different levels can also be actually trapping heat. Black carbon soot, as you can imagine, from you know, black jumper on a sunny day, mm. uh, keeps heat in, whereas sort of pale white dust, um, you know, kind of more, let's say, chalk minerals, um, is going to reflect more out. So it's, you know, it's in, in this, it's you get more dust in the, as I say, going over the Atlantic that feeds phytoplankton and algae. These algal blooms are producing oxygen. They're producing more oxygen than the world's forests. Um, they're trapping carbon dioxide from the air as they photosynthesize and um, locking it down to the seabed when they die. So it's producing you know, the oxygen, nitrogen. It's, it's part of this whole world system. And there's something intensely beautiful to me that this utterly forgotten substance that this, you know, smallest, most nondescript form of matter, you know, we call something dust when we forget where it comes from and what it's been before. And this, well, this mineral dust in this case is going out and being part of what makes the world, world go round in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's useful to, you know, we were talking about hyperobjects earlier, this kind of reflection on the, uh, the incredible complexity of this, of this place. So how does that play out in the ice sheets? Oh, again, amazing and extraordinarily complex science. So, but generally causing a bit of a problem. So, you know, in the ice sheets of this world, the Greenland ice cap um, and, you know, getting to, down to Antarctica as well, dust from around the world lands up on the ice. You know, there is, people, scientists have found um, residue from Roman silver smelting, for example, the silver and the lead from that period in time. Um, you've got this almost complete record of human intervention in the environment trapped in tiny dust particles in the layers of snow and ice that get compressed. So huge 
huge amounts of um, you know the ice core drilling that takes place there um, provides an incredible record of the, not just world's climate but also actual human industry. Um, this is extraordinary sort of historical ice archive, the dust, one part mm. of the information carried really about um, past climate and past human activity. But you know, the one, one thing about ice is it's super duper reflective, right? It's got a very high albedo um, and it reflects a lot of light back into space. And it, so that keeps itself, keeps it cool. And you put dust on top of that. And particularly when the ice gets dirty, it starts absorbing more heat. And this is a problem. This increases the rate of melting. So the more mineral dust that tends to land on the ice, um, the faster it starts to melt. Um, this increases the local warmth. So you get a feedback loop there mm -hmm. of, again, increased melting. Um, you've got changes in, and there's, I have about six feedback loops, I think, in my chapter on this in the book. And I cannot remember them off the top of my head. I'm going to struggle at this point. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> but it is all sort of producing accelerations within accelerations of, of, of melt and of change to that. You know, so, for example, as the ice sheets melt, you get what gets called high latitude dust in sort of Greenland and in uh, Alaska, where you've got land being exposed as the ice goes back that has you know, not got any plants on it. It used to have an ice sheet on top of it. Yeah. So the wind blows across that carries more dust onto the ice sheet next door. And just the the complexity of it and the interrelationship of it is kind of extraordinary. But the consequences you know, are very real of, of increasing melt, of sea level rise, of disruption to the um, oceanic flows. And, you know, yes, the um, absolutely terrifying you know, prospect of uh, the entire world's coastlines being transformed, you know, in, mm. in over the next hundred years or so, as you know, significant parts of the places we live now become flood-ridden and, and risky. We often use the metaphor or the symbol of dust to talk about the passage of time, right? Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, something being covered in dust is a sign of misuse. And I'm curious about that relationship of, of dust to time, particularly when we think about our relationship to deep time, not just to the past, mm -hmm. but of course to, to modelling the kinds of futures we might be looking at. So it's um, one of the things I write about is dust, deep uncertainty in climate modelling. It gets mm. in the way. It's really, as I discovered, it's one of the great uncertainties in climate model. It's really dust and clouds. These are the two things that make the world, you know, sort of unmodelable, that offer levels of complexity in their behaviour that go, really start stretching beyond computability. Mm. Um, and I draw in the work of Erica Thompson here, who's written a brilliant book about modeling and its and its uncertainties. But that you've not just got a sort of range of potential starting conditions. You've got huge gaps at the moment in the knowledge of how much dust there is in the world, what it's made of, where it's going. That um, I speak to various NASA scientists who are doing some, you know, brilliant, have invented brilliant missions in order to actually collect dust and, and model it and to start recognising what the planet is made of, that we're currently trying to build climate models with only about 5,000 known dust points in the world. And it's like, it's a lot more dust than that going on. <laughs> <laughs> and how much of that is is anthropogenic, is, is, is man-made versus how much is just would be blowing about yeah. in the atmosphere anyway? Great question. So it depends what kind of substance we're talking about here. But mineral dust is the biggest source of dust in by mass. Um, and about 25% of that is thought to be human produced. Um, so, you know, there is always going to be dust in the world. There's always going to be out there doing things. But mm. through agriculture, through water extraction, we've increased that you know, about 25%. Um, a lot of the black carbon soot, uh, smaller in mass, only a few million tons, I believe, but hugely impactful climate-wise because of its ability to absorb heat. Um, that's sources of that, of course, combustion of all kinds. So that includes uh, fossil fuel burning um, mm -hmm. and power generation. It also includes a lot of agricultural burning and it includes forest fires. So the agricultural burning, I suppose that's you know, directly human caused. The forest fires, you know, they don't necessarily start for human reasons, but they are the scale they are now because of we've created this heating planet for other reasons. So indirectly, I think you could attribute a lot of that to human human action. A lot of this uh, story is about not just absent water, but about absent plants as well, absent things that are kind of holding the soil in place. And um, what I was curious about is uh, the way in which you talk about it's not quite as simple as, uh, okay, let's plant a bunch of trees to replace the ones that have gone. 
Absolutely. So I think when we think about tree planting, we think, ooh, trees, trees are nice. You know, it seems extremely wholesome. Um, big industrial tree planting schemes are essentially two guys with a sort of industrial drill bit, yonk it into the soil, <laughs> yonk it out again, guy behind yonks a sapling into the soil, yonks it out again, move four foot, six foot on, do the same again. It's, it is an, it's an industrial process and its ecological and place-based sensitivities pretty much nil it's you know and as such there have been these huge schemes to do tree planting um the ones i talk about are the uh, great green wall um across a plan from the african union and other bodies across sort of sahelian africa um and also china has done a lot in the north and northwest um around the encroachment of the gobi desert which brings you know what calls yellow dragon sandstorms to beijing um so you know the the concept of plant life as a means of decreasing dust storms and dust generation in these regions, very good. The idea that you can just warm a load of saplings into the soil and they will magically grow in a, you know, in a desert, not so much. As, mm. as one of the scientists I quote says, you know, that if, if even a fraction of the trees that have been planted over the past 30 or 40 years, these places would look like the Amazon. And they most certainly do not, that mm. the saplings die. Um, in some places, they've been growing monocultures of aspen, for example. So you get, um, you know, they, the trees will grow quite happily for a whole period. And everyone's like, oh, jolly good. And then they encounter a fungus or whatever. And they're all clones. So, thonk. Yeah. Entire thousands, millions of trees die in one go. And... It doesn't mean the entire, the concepts of revegetation are stupid. It means they need to be done in a much more sensitive way. Um, in many places, what you need to do is much less industrial-sized tree planting mega projects and just reduce the incentives and reduce the factors that mean trees get cut down in the first places. Give farmers incentives to let trees and plants regrow. There were some stupid colonial-era laws in parts of West Africa um, that made it economically risky for people to have trees because I think they got taxed on having a firewood-producing asset. So you cut down the trees, you take away a stupid colonial era law and places start to regreen. Um, you do smaller, more local scale uh, regreening projects where you plant trees with mulch and with soil pits and often quite traditional forms of plant, you know, plant maintenance that actually allow them to hang on to some water. Um, you use native species, you use mixture of species, you go, well, we don't actually need trees here, we just need some form of plant. Maybe it's a grass, maybe it's a salt bush, maybe it's a sort of rabbit brush, maybe it's a scrub. It's a sort of, you get these plants called halophytes that like salty ground and will grow places that nothing else will. And if you sort of, you know, it, it's very tempting to go, oh, I shall donate to uh, plant a million trees, plant a billion trees, plant a trillion trees. The numbers sort of, it sounds very impressive. It sounds like doing something from the West, but the good schemes are specific and local and Places are regreening. That satellite studies of parts of West Africa have found that the actual, the measurable um, sort of greenery cover has increased. And so, green shoots, let's say, you know, not a, not an unalloyed good. But yeah, that, that gets back to what we've been talking about in terms of ownership and localization. It's not just about this sort of industrial forces beaming in a solution that can also be mm. bound up with a, some similar patterns of uh, dispossession, but um, actually thinking about not just what would be good in theory, but what would restore Absolutely. like this place specifically. And there's been some really, I mean, some terrifying recent reporting from Canada where forest fires have just you know, huge, huge scale this year. And I, I read a piece very recently from a writer who had been out tree planting in clear-cut areas, you know, 20-odd years ago, and realised that the trees they'd been replanting as, you know, part of the scheme from the forest, forestry, forestry owners um, had basically just been incredibly flammable. And one of the reasons they're oh, seeing God. more forest fires here is <laughs> they've been planting flammable fucking trees. You know, <laughs> ones that have particularly um sorry, it's particularly not funny, juicy sap. Yeah, my no. God. Like you know, you've got particularly, I don't know, rich sap or a gap between the bark and the tree that enables fires to burn in there. So they've been sort of these kind of Roman candles, these proper torches, the trees are just going up like that. And it's like so you know, what's the one thing that we don't need in this situation? Right. <laughs> Flammable it, trees. It makes it makes certainly in some of the more, you know, Arctic and boreal northern areas that um tree planting now actually has to be thought of as actually is this a risk versus the fire hazard it creates. Um and well, I mean again this can be overcome by thinking more carefully about the trees, thinking more carefully about the spacing, but uh, thinking more carefully about the forest management, but um 
it's not clear at this point, as I understand, whether Canada's forests are actually net absorbing carbon at all because the fires are at such a scale that trees there may be actually more of a risk than uh, an environmental benefit. So when it comes to the work of, I guess, restoration, repair, restitution, the language can be a bit uh, fuzzy around that. And often we think we're talking about the same thing, but we're also talking about radically different solutions that imply kind of radically different political settlements as well. You talk about an ethic of, of salvage being a potential way of moving forward. Yeah, so it's, it's trying to find the right model for thinking about it and, you know, trying to remove these models of restoration that imply you can go backwards in time, that mm. it's, it's tempting to think that, but it's, it's not going to happen. That We have, as humans and particularly as Westerners, we have changed the planet too much. There is, it's, it's tempting to want to believe that there is some rolling the clock back to some sort of pristine pre-human ecological state that would roll back our own guilt in some senses. Mm -hmm. But this isn't happening. The planet has changed. You know, the ecosystem of the Owens Valley, for example, the ecosystem of the Aral Sea is, is never able to go backwards in this way. But it can it can be healed, you know, it can become somewhere else. And salvage is just a usefully partial, messy term of making something out of wreckage, of mm -hmm. fighting for what you can while recognising you're dealing with, yes, with brokenness and broken systems and making the best you can from what you've got, a kind of an ethic of um, Jugard, you know, of, of, of a it, needing to think with incompleteness uh, rather than grand, grand schemes to, uh, to bring back perfection. It's, it's an argument against mega projects and in favour of local smaller making a difference like you know we can't save the world you know but can we salvage from the, something from the wreckage absolutely so what is something that you would like people to kind of carry forward like after reading this book how intimately you're a part of the world and it's a part of you i think you know that to we need to relearn, as Westerners, I think we need to relearn some of our kind of, in, and urban dwellers, we can be so detached from the planet that we can, we despair about it, but it's always something happening over there. And dust in its weird way, it ties us into the planetary metabolism as a way of, you know, you know creators of it but in terms of its particles inside our body. But to recognise there's a whole beautiful, complex, interlocking, astonishing ecology out there and that we are not outside it we do not do to it you know we're not outside this system but everything we need to do operates as part of that system that we are part of the earth systems ourselves and our solutions need to be recognizing humanity as an ecological actor and a part of an eco ecosystem rather than this modern outside ethic of domination that's failed that should be pretty clear um, how do we think of ourselves as one ecological actant among many um, how do we think of ourselves as you know, part of Earth systems? And I think that's probably, sadly, all we have time for. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been brilliant to talk with you as well, and thank you. We're up against obscene wealth and influence in the media. And it's hard out there for independent platforms trying to do things differently. So if you can, please consider donating one hour of your wage per month or whatever you can afford so that we can bring you even more of the kinds of podcasts, videos, and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you.